Greetings one and all, wherever you are in the universe, and welcome to the latest episode of An Espresso Shot of Confidence, the podcast that explores all aspects of confidence, challenges taboos and unhelpful narratives, and empowers you to be awesome, loudly and proudly. It's time to grab yourself a drink and settle in for the next however long this episode is. I'm your host, the Master of Awesomeness, Ashley Griffiths, and today we'll be talking all things workplace culture. So throughout the history of work, there's been a prevalent culture of us and them. Leaders get upset that their staff don't work as hard as they want them to. Employees get frustrated with leaders not listening and empowering them. Misunderstandings dominate proceedings. There have been countless studies that have explored the importance of workplace cultures, how engaged and valued employees are more productive, and how emotionally intelligent and inspiring leaders get more from their team, enabling them to focus on their own high-value tasks and lead instead of doing everything. So who better to talk to about this than Lou Castello, who supports stressed founders to build a healthier relationship with their teams so they can delegate with confidence and focus on high-value tasks that bring the biz forwards. Through this work, they help leaders create inclusive and dynamic workplace cultures that enable them and their businesses to thrive. Hey, Lou, how's it hey, going? Hey, very good. That was a good introduction. Thank you. <laughs> oh, awesome. So for, for our awesome listeners out there, could you just uh, tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Well, anything. <laughs> you got you. I got the, the stage. The floor is yours. <laughs> the floor is mine. Okay. Um, well, I think like, you know, I'm someone that grew up in Sicily, very sunny Sicily, and then by choice decided to <laughs> move to the UK when I was 18. Yeah, I know. And that was, uh, you know, it was the start of a beautiful adventure that led me to specialize in festivals operation management. And... For 10 years, I've worked in this field, and that's really where I have developed, you know, this passion for building high-performing teams, but uh, without, you know, the traditional corporate cultures. So without the manipulation, without the managers, without the bureaucracy, and yeah, I just it just started as a passion project, like really studying about organizational psychology, different systems uh, to support cultures. And uh, yeah, and then I experimented so much with my teams and I made sure that, you know, we build differently from what has been done in the past. And now I'm, you know, I'm coaching other founders to do the same. But it really it really was born as a natural thing, like in the work that I used to do. So I think that's a nice thing to know about me. How I love that. To this, yeah. That's awesome. The fact that it just naturally occurred through the work yeah. that you were doing. Yeah, I think I was a bit forced as well. <laughs> yeah, how so? The events industry is incredibly volatile. It's not an industry, you know, mm. you are constantly chasing pro new projects. You have to, you have very tight deadlines. Often you have very tight budgets. A lot of the people I was, that were working for me, my teams, they were coming from all over the world. So highly diversified teams. And there was also the element of, you know, many festivals. Uh, most of the people that work in smaller teams, they're volunteers. 
so you know i had to find myself like really try to keep people engaged people had to wake up at 7 a.m work for me like for 12 hours under the rain in the mud and i had to find ways to really keep people happy keep people engaged um also try to retain some of these people if they weren't traveling too much uh, for the next year as well because that's what you really need so i think i was pulled in so many directions and i realized that the strength of my work of the result of my work was coming from my team and how Hmm. how much the team counted on each other and supported each other even though they were very fresh teams you know a lot of the times people didn't know each other they didn't know me so i think all those conditions the perfect storm it actually pushed me to focus on what's important and what's really what really matters which is not the status or my you know official work title you know um i always made sure that we were all like working on a collective level each person had a function but uh, there wasn't this idea of vertical hierarchies or, sure. of course, I was paid. They weren't most yeah. of the time. But uh, thankfully, it didn't come to be a deterrent because they volunteered to be there. They wanted to be there. So it wasn't the case of asking someone to work for free and they didn't want to. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting industry, you know, and an interesting dynamic. So oh, I bet. It's one, I've, it's one I've often looked at and thought, you know, what is just the way that you bring all this diverse group of people together and they need to work together collectively, individually to make this whole thing go off. Because if they don't, you're going to have a lot of irate people in a field or a factory or wherever you're hosting these things. And and we've seen the documentaries of when it goes badly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I always say that if uh, we've done our job well, you don't think about us. You don't think about the workers behind the festival because we've done yeah. our job well. There is no problems. Nobody's thinking about that. Everybody's thinking about having fun, listening to the music. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So we're a kind of the invisible force behind. And there is so much work. Like I think I did not realize until I got into this industry how much work there is behind an event. And, you know, even for a festival of just three, four days, we had to stay, most of us will do production for over a month. Sure, I bet. It's a lot. I bet. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. I've been involved in some events in the past. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a, okay, show up the night before, set it all up, and then boom, go. I exactly. Mean, I mean, you could potentially do that, but it would be, it's asking yeah. for trouble. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and you know, you need to really, because you have so many different type of people, different egos, different mm. experiences different methods as well and you have all these departments that have to intertwine and highly communicate all the time because you know even if i was managing maybe one area uh in that area i had to have the electrician coming to put the light before the decor was put up so i had to make sure that i would book the job you know like you constantly have to manage everybody as well as you know leading your team so it's i loved it obviously I loved it. I've done it for so many years. I loved it. And what I loved of it was this, that it kind of broke the traditional corporate systems because they just don't work in this type of industry. So when you need to be highly efficient, highly innovative, creative, because a lot of the times a lot of stuff goes out of plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to really make things as you go. Um, 
I think when you have this kind of a very ever-changing environment, like so fast, you, things have to move so fast, you really are forced to focus on what's important. And that's the people and the relationship they have with each other, with the leader. Absolutely. And I think, again, I, I can see how that moves into the line of work you're doing now regards workplace culture because within a workplace you've got all of those things haven't you different egos different ways of doing things different personalities different um objectives almost and ways of thinking and ways of living and not everybody's there for the same reasons at least to start with you know so that's quite an mm -hmm. interesting area to discover so let's just talk about that for a little bit the workplace culture so it's something that it's a t oh there we go <laughs> yes <laughs> start your engines please okay so workplace <laughs> workplace culture i mean it's something that's thrown around you know in the academic yeah. literature in the management literature i see about 900 posts on it on linkedin every single day but what is it how would you define it and, and why do you think it's important on an, both an individual and a collective level? So how I define it is culture is an organism or an environment. It starts as an environment and then it should become more of an organism, you know, um, because an environment is something that more influences the people inside, but it really needs to, at some point, become more co-created so the people that inside have input and influence on the environment so i like to say that it starts as an environment but it should become an organism and this is what culture is really it's how culture is in our society wherever you have people mm -hmm. you have culture like sure. and something that i think a lot of people don't understand is that you will have a culture no matter what even if you're not intentional with it and often this is where the problem starts, is that the model of corporate or corporate culture that we have is basically based on the 70s America. And that was all built, first of all, on models of Ford mm -hmm. from manufacturing industry. So the 95, you know, the, all the middle managers, all this like uh, system was really consolidated through the manufacturing industry. And then it was corporations of you know consulting other type of corporations uh, service-based uh, companies and the issue with that is that they never accounted for the human factor they saw people as numbers like parts <laughs> of a cogs of a machine mm. and the issue with that it's like with any kind of you know they call them resources human resources human resources you know? yeah yeah, I know no, that I hate this term, <laughs> and and you will notice also that I don't use the term employee anymore as well. I try to avoid it as much as possible. And what happened with that is that they were not accounted for. So when you have, for example, you know you have a an IT system, a computing system, you know that you need to do updates. You know that you need to feed a certain amount of information to get a certain amount. So for some reason, humans were not seen in the in the human form, and it was assumed. Very stupidly, if you ask me, <laughs> it was assumed that they will just do as they are told. Okay, they will just operate as they are told, and that's it. You know, that's you know that's why I compare vertical corporate hierarchies to feudalism, because it's the same. It's the same culture of like someone is at the top giving orders, and then everybody is gonna follow because 
you're paying them. They're not even slaves anymore. So if you're paying them, they must do what you're telling them to do. <laughs> and obviously, as we know now, humans are much more interesting and complicated <laughs> than that. So it didn't work for many, many reasons connected to that. So it's interesting because when I have studied more about that time, that time period, how these corporate uh, cultures were created, I was literally, I was really shocked that nobody was <laughs> pointing at this, at the human factor. But at the same time, you know, we have very low diversity in terms of leadership. The leadership was white man, uh, Native mm -hmm. America mostly, you know, that was the consulting companies, you know, McKinsey, Bain, they were all like, you know, a certain demographic, a certain type of people with a certain culture. So they created a model that worked for them in their own head. And then because of more power and influence, many other people modeled them. Sure, I get that. I get it's that. not because it worked. <laughs> it's because it's accepted. Well, they, they were working on classic Taylorist and Fordist approaches. Yeah. You know, to the workplace, you know, you see them as the humans as resources that you manage to maximize productivity. And one of the yeah. ways to do that is just purely pay them and pay them a wage based on that productivity. You've got a wage. Therefore, if we give you a bit more, you will work harder. And, and something that is not talked much a lot about as well when everybody is hailing for <laughs> Ford is this Ford was a Nazi. He was in love with Hitler. and. I think that can explain a lot as well on how he wanted to organize his companies <laughs> and how he saw, uh, but it's true, you know, these connections have to be made because they are important in the history of our culture. Well, I think it's very true. I think it's something that's definitely uh, often swept under the floorboards uh, and yeah. the carpets, everything regarding that, how a lot of Western, I'm going to use the term Western leaders were fascinated by the whole notion of fascism um be that hitler be that mussolini um it was held up as a potential model for growth exactly um yeah which it's something that's was never once mentioned in my history lessons in the uk oh, definitely not we mine <laughs> rule britannia we were a force for good yeah <laughs> hmm. but it's but all connected you know that's the yeah. thing i think people do People assume that company culture is separated from societal culture, and it's not. It's most definitely not. Sure. Because you have people, and people have societal culture in their in their in their beings, and so that will always feel inside the company. And that's why it's important to co-create a new communal culture inside the company sure. that celebrates everything, everyone's uniqueness. Okay. But at the same time creates you know a bit more of a glue and mutual understanding you know yep. because there, there might be uh, different cultures there might be different ideologies different belief systems mm -hmm. so it's important to really build a cohesive you know which is a lot of companies are trying to fix this with one-offs di trainings and it's not going to work because first of all because you need a change of system okay like you need to change the system you know, because otherwise you'll, you'll, you'll always be condemned to fix symptoms, like patch symptoms and never actually go at the source and the cause yeah, of what's going on. Um, so you really need to like think more about systems uh, because that's what leaders should really manage, not people, systems. And then the other side is, uh, you know, especially now there is a lot of uh, 
that is a lot of contrast in our society, a lot of bipartisan type of politics. And inside this all, all spills inside a company. And I think it's important that we decide as a society, but as companies as well, in which direction do we want to grow? Okay. So as a founder, you're, you're thinking about this, you may be relatively new to, to the business world, or you've only just started hiring employees. So this will all be new. I mean, you'll, you've probably started out with this idealistic notion of creating these things that you didn't get when you were in the world of employment. If you ask many solopreneurs, small business owners, part of the reason they set up companies or went out solo is because they got tired of the corporate nonsense, mm. the traditional corporate structures where it was all bottom line thinking and they got burnt out of it. Yet mm. when people then start creating their own companies, Mm -hmm. you often see a lot of founders end up going and doing exactly what they were trying exactly. to get away from. Yeah. So what, what advice would you, would you give to give to founders in that regard? Yeah. So I think, I think I, you know, I'll start with a little bit of like my experience with this because I was lucky because I've had both. I've had corporate jobs, traditional corporate jobs, and I've seen how much they're killing people's souls. And then, I also had the occasion to experiment much more in the festival industry, which is what now informs everything apart from my academic training as well, that I bring to, I don't like to be a prescriptive coach. I'm not a person that tells you, you have to do this, 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 and that, because I'm there to coach you on how to think, how you need to think, because it's an entire paradigm shift. You need to really understand that traditional companies don't uh, have systems that are for high efficiency and they don't have systems to keep people really engaged and happy in their work. They were not meant to, and mm -hmm. they don't do that. So you need to first do a cultural shift in your own head, which is the first part, you know, what I coach on. And second, you, once you've done this, you really need to focus on your team and you need to co-create that culture with your team. Okay. So that's the important thing. I think really reconnecting with your team and stop isolating yourself because a lot of the times you see young founders suffering burnout and everything in silence, you know, maybe they're like taking, you know, they're receiving awards. I, I met uh, tons of founders this year. The kind of image, it's very good. Like they're super successful. They're getting so many contracts, big clients, they have awards, they have their small team. But then they tell me, I feel super lonely. I think my team doesn't respect me. I have these issues with my team and I try to talk with them. But I'm getting frustrated. It's not happening. And all of this is a direct cause of not knowing how to co-create co culture with your team. Sure. Uh, because they still think that there is a, is a top-down approach. It's not a top-down approach. It's a collective approach. Sure. Your role is as a leader, of course. You need to be the leader. The leader is the person that keeps the vision and that supports the people. It's not the person that has to take decisions all the time and it's not the person that has to have a solution all the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many of the motivational theories out there that illustrate, illustrate this about mm -hmm. that job empowerment, that job enrichment, giving your employees space to co-create, to make decisions yeah. within the structure of whatever it is you're trying to achieve. I think, 
it is empowering. I've been there yeah. as an employee, you know, don't, we don't use the term employee as someone who used to work for other people. How about that? <laughs> um, for me, I was most engaged when I was said, here's a project, here's the budget. Bye-bye. Exactly. Off you go, you yeah. know, and within certain, obviously there'd be parameters yeah. there because yeah. you need it. You know, you don't want to just invest all of the all of the company budget into a project. It sort of be, you know, there needs to be structure in there. Yeah. But within that structure, there is empowerment because you know yeah. there's so many skills, and, and and these skills are not only useful for you as an individual, individual within that company. They're useful to the company, and those skills are also transferable to different areas of the business and. Do you find when when you've got that sort of environment, when when founders are creating that sort of environment, I mean, what sort of impact does that have on staff turnover and staff overall staff motivation? Oh, they definitely like the turnover rates drop completely. Like because you know when people are feeling that they're trusted, that they're valued, that they're given the right support enough for them to face small challenges. You know, because the point is like keep giving people small challenges so they. They grow, but they're not too far out of their comfort zone. And they're also growing in a direction that they're interested in, which I think a lot of people are missing out on, you know. Um, and this starts from the hiring process. Sure. You really need to try to align the challenges with what the person wants personally. Um, but I think most of approaches, you know, even in the leadership theories, and literally until today I was commenting on a post on LinkedIn, uh, hailing uh, a speaker in my, in my industry that, says that you need to use the PERMA system to create high-efficient team. The PERMA system is actually a framework that it's about self-actualization focused on you mm -hmm. know, Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yep. And it's a hyper-individualistic framework. For, there is a number of reasons for this. I'm not saying it's completely like to put in the bin, but I don't think it's the most effective when it comes to create belonging, cohesion with the others, collective ideation and... You know, because it mm -hmm. just focuses on the individual. So it's incomplete. You need more. We need to move on towards more collective approaches because that's what I'm working mostly with creative founders, but literally any company because to survive, you need innovation. So you need creativity mm -hmm. in any industry, any industry, even the most traditional, any, any. stable, you know. Yeah, any industry. Any industry. Yeah, absolutely. So to have that, you have, you know, the usual approach is like the founder has the ideas and then everybody else has to execute. It's, it's just a counterproductive, you know. When you have 10 heads on the focus on the same problem, you're going to get amazing solution things that you never thought of, you know. Especially if there's space to create. Exactly. You know, like having something like, like the Disney approach where you literally just throw <laughs> everything kind of at it. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. And it's not, you know, and then you are able to look, okay, we've got this, we've got that. Okay, that don't, that probably won't work. Yeah. But maybe if we take that idea from there and mix it with this, voila. Yeah. You know, it, Pixar, it's... Pixar 2 does something really interesting. Um, they have a name for this. I can't remember the name of... But what they do is when they have the first draft of a storyboard of a movie, of a cartoon movie, they bring it to a meeting yeah. with people from every other department that is not the storyboard department yep all their colleagues from the other departments animation you know this and that and they are encouraged to criticize 
discuss, uh, make suggestions, and you know, yeah. and that's really interesting. And they have this approach. And apparently, movies like Up, yeah. apparently Up Storyboard was completely different before getting into this meeting. And yeah. then, you know, and then it was one of the most successful stories, for example. Yeah, it's a very yeah. powerful model in areas like NLP. It's called the Disney model. It's kind of modeled on that <laughs> approach of like having that idea, ripping that idea apart, but also saying, okay, we like this idea. And then being able from that, from the criticism, from the constructive feedback, from the, oh God, I love that. You end up with something that's like, you bring a lot of people on board with it's quite an exciting approach but see, that's just a you know i mean that's excited and it's great and the output of it is important because that's what they work for right but what i think is more valuable is the bond that is created between yeah. people because you can't buy that no. only time and uh, time spent together in a healthy way can create that and that's the strength of these companies is people bonding and people belonging you know and when you create that, you're building for the long term because the output is a short term sure. factor. If you only measure that, then yeah, you can use whatever, like, you know, massive capitalists will tell you, oh, vertical hierarchy works just fine. <laughs> and, you know, Blockbuster was telling you the same until like 20 years ago, until it got, went extinct. Kodak was the same, you know. So every company is failing, is going to fail. The, the, you know, the question is like, when? Mm-hmm. And if you want to last and have a, a long-lasting impact, you need to focus on this. You need to focus on creating a community and a culture of belonging where people are really connected with what they're doing. Yeah, I hear you with that. I hear you with that. And I just wanted to kind of come back to the the area of communication because obviously communication is huge uh, in, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in all of these areas, you know, from yeah. the things that you've mentioned so far about the founders. So I just want to focus on the founder at the moment because I think one of the common issues, and I know this when that, certainly when I was in management, is when you're in that management role and you're like hyper-focused on getting certain results or, or it's your baby, you're, you own that business and you bring people in and they don't, or at least you perceive they don't care as much as you do and they may not. They've got other things going on. This may actually be real. And when that happens, you end up getting frustrated and angry. And maybe you don't actually say that and communicate how you as a founder, as a leader, as a manager feel or Mm -hmm. what you would really like from your staff. Mm -hmm. That there, I think, often leads to a lot of them and us a lot of frustration, a lot of micromanaging, um, a lot of angry outbursts sometimes. Mm-hmm. So how can founders, what can they do to remove some of this frustration and as a result of that, create more empowering workspaces for their the people that work there? You, you've really challenged me with that employees now. It's so ingrained in my mind. Um, so how can they do Ooh. that? How can they remove some of that and communicate more effectively so that they feel seen and heard themselves. They don't feel lonely and they're also empowering um, the people that work there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) I love this question. I'll start by saying that, you know, you really have two main reasons why 
your person, you know, the person in your team is, is not behaving like you were expecting, you know, like you were hoping. One, you hire the wrong person. Okay. Mm-hmm. We can get into that later if you want, like what, what it means a wrong person, you know. And then the other, which is actually the most common, I'm saying the most common reason is that you, you didn't have a good communication from the start, like you said. So there is something in organizational psychology called the psychological contract. Okay. We got getting too mm-hmm. nerdy and academic. Um, I'm going to explain that basically the psychological contract is a set of unwritten expectations that both the employees and the company have, you know, like the, the, the person in the team and the founder have, they both have it. Oftentimes, these expectations are subconscious or, you know, people are not 100% self-aware of it and that's why they don't communicate them. So, for example, a classic assumption that a founder has and, and I, I see all the time is that I'm paying them, I'm a good person, we have a good purpose, why are they not doing that? You know, why is that not enough? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they've never created, you know, the right workflow, the right approach to support that person in the right way to do their job. You know, there is a lot of operational stuff missing because there is the assumption that it's almost subconscious and it only comes to surface when I get them to talk about it. Um, And then on the other hand, the, the, the person, you know, now the dynamic is also a power dynamic. And that mm-hmm. is important, okay? Because you no matter what, most people that have had a job, you will always perceive your the founder, the boss, as almost above you, like they have power above you. There is this perception. So even if you're a bit of a rebel like me, you know, you always have something at the back of your head that says, am I risk by saying mm-hmm. this or doing this, okay? Yep. And this is actually the first thing I say to people because, you know, I get founders that tell me, oh, but... I do have conversations when they don't give, they don't tell me what they're needing. Like they told me what they need and I give it to them and it's still not work. And I'm like, how are you doing these conversations? How are you setting up the feedback channels? Because a person might not tell you what they need for several reasons. Mm-hmm. One, fear of retaliation because maybe they've had a past workplace trauma. This is actually super common. Sure. And this is why I always tell founders, you have to assume that your employees are traumatized when they come to you, like when they start with you. You cannot think that they start their work life inside your company. You have to take into mm-hmm. account the psychological weight sure. that they have from their previous business. So that's important. The second reason, it could be that they are not self-aware of their needs because they've never been asked. And they have <laughs> not, you know, we don't live in a society that has taught us to properly articulate our needs. <laughs> You know what I mean? So how are people meant to learn this if nobody teaches them? You know, nobody shows them that it's important. Uh, and so work needs as well are, are important. And a lot of people don't know how to, to ask. And, you know, there is also something that I see all the time with the companies I'm working with. They, you know, the founder is goodwill. There's like a person that wants to be good, wants to treat their people well. And they want to maintain a good culture. You know, they're young. A lot of the people at work are quite young, like or millennial or Gen Z. And they're really like enthusiastic. And they already think that they're different because they're different people mm-hmm. than what their bosses were. But what ends up happening is creating a team of yes people. Uh, mm. A team that is very, of people that is very similar to you. Yes. 
and then they are very afraid to ruin the piece by giving you some certain feedback. So you see what I mean? It's so easy to, you know, just saying, oh, I've asked them for their needs and they have not tell me that it could be so many reasons why that's not working in the proper way. So, uh, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? So the tools yeah. I help with are highly personalized with the case and the company and the people. So that's why I tell you, like, I, I'm not a prescriptive person. I don't believe in prescription because each team is different. Sure. I had a, a customer that had a problem with the team that each team did, like, um, the most problems with two different team members. And they were co complete opposite type of people. And we worked on a different structure of communication for both. So one was more a confrontation one-to-one, -one, but with leading question um, and a high focus on the other person's need and the founder not talking about their needs mm -hmm. because there's been too much of that previously. And then with another person, for example, that they had issues with, and we're talking about issues of, you know, not respecting deadlines or not communicating well, um, maybe not fixing mistakes and doing the same mistakes over and over again, or not being responsive to feedback or, mm -hmm. you know, all of those little uh, things that come up that ultimately start to create problems with client service and all that stuff. But then the other person, uh, the issue of the other person from the description of everything that was told, I could see straight away that this person was intimidated in group settings okay. because all the feedback was always asked in group settings and this person will never speak up. Yes. And uh, also this person was intimidated by the founder because they had the opposite personality really like on and this person is more shy. And there was a lack of anonymous, anonymous feedback system. This actually happens in most companies. And if you want me to give like one advice like to take away from all of this, make like build an anonymous feedback system. It doesn't matter how you do it. You can do it as simple as setting up Google Forms with an, without collecting the email addresses, obviously, because you need to sure. keep it anonymous. Um, it could be as simple as that. It doesn't matter how small your team is, how positive you think everything is, you must have an anonymous feedback system. Sure. That's, that helps with psychological safety. I totally get that. I mean, that, like when you talked about the psychological contract and, and the psychological element, of it um it's so important you know i think one yeah. of the, the one of the things that i would always say and i've said this to myself you know, on a personal level on a work level and i say it to anyone else who is open to listening to me on this is never <laughs> assume it don't yeah. assume exactly somebody understands or has the same mindset or approach as you because i think again you'll look around, like you said there, you'll look around the meeting room and you'll see everybody nodding their heads and you're not paying any attention truly yeah. to you what's worry. going on. You yeah. have to worry when people are, are, are agreeing with you. You Man. have to worry. You need to hire people that challenge you because they will help you grow the company. They will help you grow your purpose. They will help you get to points that you could have never imagined. So Absolutely. you have to worry when people are agreeing with you. And like you said, you have cultural lenses. So I call them like a cultural glasses, okay? Yeah. Every single person <laughs> has a pair of glasses that makes them see the world in a certain way. Oh, absolutely. And you need to be able to get out of your own head <laughs> and your own ego when you're well, leading, when you're, especially when you're in a leadership position. That's sure. especially important. I think this is true as well. Like when, when you talk about that, that yes mentality and, and, mm. and that, you often see this play out 
in areas of diversity I've seen. Yeah. So companies will say, yeah, we're diverse. We, we employ X amount of females. We've got X amount of non-binary here. We've got <laughs> X amount of, <laughs> yeah, they, they've got, we've got X amount of people from ethnic minorities or whatever. But, yeah. and, and I, and I think this is a huge, but yes, there are those, those kind of demographic differences, but there are also massive demographic similarities yeah. with the people they're bringing in, be that educational background, mm-hmm. be that income band. Um, and, and that I see plays out a lot. So whereas you have on a surface level got diversity from an absolute ideal idea generation, from a create from a creation point of view, from a being able to have diverse discussions, not so much. Have you seen stuff like that? Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> all the time. Like this is the ma- major corporations are struggling with because, okay, um, without trying to like turn this into a massive, uh, you know, <laughs> like conversation. But the important thing to note here is first, when we use the term, the terminology we use. So when we use the term diversity, we are centering a norm. You know what is accepted as the norm. And often in Western countries is white, cis heteronormativity, you know, especially male. Mm-hmm. Um, so something I learned actually from Sherine Daniels, which is a DI expert from the States. She wrote an amazing book, The Anti-Racist Organization. And in this book, actually, she advocates for the need to shift from the term diversity to diversification. Okay. Okay. And that's why I call, I say diversified teams. I use it as a verb. It's more of an action because when mm. you're saying diversity, you're, you keep normalizing that, you know, and also the same with, you said, uh, minority groups. And a lot of those companies use the same exact term because I keep picking people up. Um, but actually it's better to say minoritized or marginalized. Again, okay. verb. They're not a minority. Sure. You know what I mean? Like we we created this idea that uh, queer people are the minority, black people are the minority. Okay, maybe statistically in white center cult- countries they might be, but the point here is that they have been purposely marginalized, purposely ma- ma- minoritized. Yeah. So when it comes to do this type of work in your workplace, the issue that you are saying, why do they seem to have diversified team, even though? As you said, and, and that was a good observation, you know, still within certain s- classes standards, most often, which are requiring a degree and stuff. And, and that's already, you know, when you're hiring people that only have to have a degree to get your job, you're already marginalizing uh, certain groups, you know, even immigrants like myself. You know, I'm white, but I'm an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I would have less rights uh, for studying, like it's harder to study, whatever. Yeah. So you're already marginalizing. So when you're doing that, yeah, you can hire, you know, it's not about diversity or diversification of like races, even though that is important and needs to be addressed and is not done very often in the right way. But you can't have that without inclusive practices. So you need to create inclusion. And how do you create inclusion? You need to be equitable. And how are you equitable when you're not requiring a degree as the only, you know, mean of you getting into a job? So you sure. see what I mean? It's a, it's a cycle. Sure. 
you know, and uh, it's all interconnected. Oh, I get that. I mean, just as I was putting together that question, I was thinking like my terms just because of like just on this call I was like I bet they are going to call me out on this mm -hmm. and I was thinking how do I word this and I was kind of cringing and I was thinking like oh, <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry I mean you know I'm the expert in this like you're not yeah. expected to know everything <laughs> but but yeah. it, it's an important point to raise because that yeah. is the norms you know that's the um, that is the world we're kind of maybe based on our education, the culture we've grown up in. We feel that by we're actually, you know, being inclusive with the language you're using, but yeah. it's the but exact not. opposite. Yeah. But because, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a big criticism as well in the DI community is that most of this uh, work is done by white people, for example, mm. white cis heteronormative people. And, you know, there is certain stuff that you just can't study on books, you know? And, like, I have, apart from the fact that it's, you know, anything that is human-related, it's a never-ending topic. Sure. You're always learning, you're always growing. There is never, you know, you can't just get a degree and you're done. That, it just doesn't work like that. Sure. But historically, for example, DEI training, CIPD, all this kind of stuff, they are, like, really expensive. And, again... They're not accessible to everyone. No. And you know what I mean? And if you want, if you are lucky enough to find a company to invest in you, statistically, it's usually white people. So there is a, like a big, big, and, and cis heteronormative as well, because statistically, they are the people with more power in leadership position where they get investments. So, you know, it's interesting because it needs to be talked about. It needs to be talked about that there is not only one way to approach this type of work. I don't have a C CIPD certification, yet I did study a university as well, but also on my own. I studied a lot of organizational psychology, DI practices, anti-racism, anti-ableism. You know, I've studied as much as I could and I keep studying every day. And as I said, like each funder I work with has a different type of team. So I make sure that I have, you know, you can see, going back to the example that we were talking about before, the founder that has tried to talk about the needs with the, with the people that work for them, they just think that's just a conversation. I just need to say it. What well, I think with my lenses that are trained, I look at the intercultural uh, intersectionality. I look at the, you know, if there is any queer people from which culture they're coming from. Uh, you know, they, there is like so mm -hmm. many different cultural lenses that I need to like think and also the psychological safety of the company how are people feeling inside the company how can they feel more safe to actually voice their opinion or you know do they have any neurodivergency are they supported in their neurodivergency mm -hmm. is there any channel for the company to do that you know there is so many layers and that's why it you need expert help because there is so much knowledge I took you know I spent 10 years building this knowledge and I still build and build and build and I still learn and learn and learn and mm -hmm. I read a lot of books from completely different people from me you know like I have to read books from experts from other backgrounds that are not white that are not queer even like you know different from me I have to because that's the only way you you actually understand humans more and you can understand human issues more in an organization yeah I'm with you on that I think it like for me, I was talking to a couple of people about this. I didn't realize truly, like when I moved away from 
from this country and mm-hmm. lived in the country as as a as a foreign visitor or guest or whatever language we want to use here in a different country that that just changed everything for me because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're not looking well you are you are looking through things with your lens but it it causes cognitive dissonance because yeah. a lot of the stuff that you're <laughs> you're thinking is not true to the to the to the, that culture that you're in so it it throws you into a bit of a limbo but i think again mm. and some people struggle with that some people because yeah. it fundamentally goes against what they consider their identity to be and and you see people playing up oh yeah we'd never do things like this at home and this is like this is backward culture and really negative language like that whereas other people like for me just because i'm a very curious individual i immediately thought ah. <laughs> never thought about it like that yeah and and it also again then when i came back into my my culture of birth it caused a massive amount of reflection again i had the cognitive dissonance and dissonance again it was like mm-hmm. i swear things used to be different here or yeah. I swear things were like this before but they're not actually true or was i living yeah. a lie or and this and i think you only truly get that by like you say it's not just simply a, a one day okay so today we're going to talk about diversity yeah. today we're going to talk about yeah. okay safe spaces um mental health awareness day um we're going to talk about understanding and empathy uh with with different groups within within our uh, within our organization this yeah. is a place of it has to be through not talking about it, it has to be through living it, experiencing yeah. it and, this, and learning about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I'm not you know, I'm not saying all of these workers that I know brilliant people that do this type of work, do corporate workshops. I'm not saying that they're like useless. You know, I think they do plant very important seeds and they can give the occasion to some people to reflect on things they never seen before. But uh, yeah, I do think that they are not thought for the long-term implementation. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot. Imagine getting like 45 years old, white woman from a small town in Texas to a trans awareness training, like straight in, you know, without explaining the need to learn about these things. Why does the company want, you know, there is is a preparation that needs to happen. Sure. You You can't just like slap things in people's faces no matter how much you think like is the right thing to do you need to make them understand why you think is the right thing to do anything that is you know this is a change management principle mm, sure most most people don't see cultural changes as uh, an operational change management management but actually it is <laughs> sure of course it is yeah. it is it is a process of change management and there is a reason why most you know a lot of change management uh, initiatives big scale fails because people don't know how to do it because they don't think about the human element. So when you're doing any type of change management, you really need to start uh, the preparation part is the most important, the delicate part, because focus groups is like my favorite thing to use in this case. So you have a focus group and you're telling me, right, as a company, we're thinking, you know, we would like to build um, a culture of more inclusivity for queer people. Mm -hmm. And something that we would like to start doing is trans awareness trainings, for example, okay? And you need to give space for people to voice their concerns, okay? 
and it's hard to do because you, you know I'm, I'm a you know I'm a non-binary person of myself. It's hard to hear people saying potentially harmful thing, you know, and things that um, further marginalize people. But mm-hmm. I have the conviction that most people are not, if they really truly realize the impact of their beliefs and how that marginalizes others, I think they would actually think maybe I can learn something new. So the problem is that if you don't give them that space to discuss different points of views, a safe space where they don't feel like they're attacked, they're not called a Karen, you know? (laughs) If you give them a safe space, you know, now there is also criticism of white comfort and, you know, uh, there is definitely practitioners that think in a different way, but I am someone that was born in a homophobic, transphobic, uh, sexist, patriarchal culture. And I, even though I have a lot of those identities and also racist, you know, culture, even though I'm queer and, you know, I'm non-binary. And even though I had all these identities, I still internalized so much of this from my previous culture. Sure. And I had to unpeel all these layers in the years. And it took time. And, you know, it took my community to point at it. I had friends, you know, telling me, oh, but why did you say that? That's not nice, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, until then, I would never realize, you know, it took the black community to make me realize that I was not doing my job as a white person. I should have been more anti-racist. I should have educated myself. And I was not sure. doing it. You know, so, but I had a safe space to make mistakes and I had a space where people understood that I was ignorant mm-hmm. and that I needed a, I needed a better information to make more informed decisions. Sure. And I think that's the approach I prefer doing when it comes to teams. I'm getting teams that are really, really young right now because I'm, I'm working with, you know, under five years type of uh, companies. So the mm-hmm. teams are relatively young and that's why i want to get them early because if you build all those systems of mutual understanding mutual respect no matter what type of you know background you come with because this is not about erasing people's personal background it's about elevating what's positive from Mm -hmm. their personal background celebrating people for their personal background and then just like if there are things that are potentially conflictual with other people just tell them see okay well you know, like, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Do that bit of like knowledge gap, like just close it for them and make the team more cohesive. Sure. And it's possible because I've worked with people who might have been like extremely, extremely, a, a type of religion that maybe didn't really want to uh, condone uh, gay people, for example. Sure. I worked with people that told me to my face, I don't agree with this. And by the end of our work relationship, they respected me. They absolutely loved working with me. They wanted to work with me again. They told me that they, by meeting me, by seeing the person I am, they realized that maybe they, they had a little bit too much uh, anger towards yeah. some people for no reason. You know what I mean? It works. It can, it, it can definitely be done. Well, it, it does. I mean, again, it, it, a lot of it all comes down to being able to have these conversations in education. Yeah. And you've obviously got the cultural biases in there as well. You know, I didn't realize, again, like I said, when when I moved abroad, I didn't realize how certain biases were so ingrained Mm -hmm. within me, you know, things that were deemed racist, sexist, Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't even contemplate that I was being that way. I was like mortified when I actually looked and was like, oh, my God, I said those things. That's terrible. 
and mm-hmm. and by having that awareness again and being willing to kind of explore that and go okay well what what can i change up now you know instead yeah. of going well that's just the way it is you know and you need a safe space, space to do that you know what yes, i mean yes absolutely you need that because a lot of the time these people you know we are partly a product of our environment sure so there are people that don't have a safe space unless they come to a company that gives them that safe space because maybe at home everybody's set in a certain way all their friends are in a certain way so it's hard for people to completely like go out of their comfort zone they need to have a safe space of of self-actualization self-growth um but also with always the need the attached need of belonging to their team belonging to the rest of the people in the company so that's why there needs to be a shift in how we see work work you know if you're thinking about modern slavery like you have to work because it's a capitalist system and you have to be used to produce for someone else and make someone else rich you know i think we are not going anywhere we need to shift and like actually yes we live in a capitalistic system i'm not an economist so i'm not gonna talk about how can that change so having this system we don't have to work in that way we can work in a way that it's meaningful to people where people are self-actualizing and growing in in something that they love doing things that they love and feeling that they're surrounded by people that support them and make them grow and that is possible it's 100 possible i have done it I have lived it, so that's why I know it can work, you know? Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) I love that, you know, that moving moving away from that whole traditional them and us, right, and actually looking at what's possible here by creating those spaces. I absolutely love that. So we're rushing headfirst into uh into the sunset as it were with our time absolutely (laughs) it's just flown by and there's just so much more that i'd love to uh to speak speak with you about so i guess that's probably gonna necessitate a round two yes yeah awesome i'd love to i love chatting with you Awesome. So for any listeners that are out there that maybe are looking for some support with their workplace culture, um, their inclusivity policies, whatever, how can they get in touch with you? Through LinkedIn. Through LinkedIn? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Lou Castello, you find me. Okay. Lou with a L-U. Okay. <laughs> Only two letters. <laughs> you pronounce, you pronounce, you pronounce, uh, your surname so much better than I do. Um, anyway, so before we before we set off into the sunset, have one final question for you for our listeners. So, what is your espresso shot of confidence? Oh, I think it's about yeah. Really find what connects you to the world. Find your place in, in your society. What can you give to your community? What can you give to society? Because I, I truly believe every single person has a gift to give to others. And, you know, I meet a lot of people that are feeling a little bit lost in their life. And, and they ask me, how do I stay motivated? How can I be so motivated? And it's literally because I'm serving others. I'm doing something that nice. I believe it can help our society. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Th- thank you thank so you. much for sharing, and and it's, it's been a yeah, it's been a great conversation. So thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts and giving your time. Thank you for inviting me. 
It's been awesome. So, and thank you to you, the listeners, wherever you are in the universe, for uh, listening and sharing this moment with us. So, all that's left to say is a. All that's left to say is say. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, So, all that is left to say is subscribe wherever you're listening or watching this to get notifications of future episodes. And as always, stay awesome.